You could be seated. Well, as you probably know, if you've been around here for some time, we as a church are usually working our way through books of the Bible on Sunday morning, one book at a time, versus, say, uh, topical sermons or thematic series of various topical messages that you might find in some other churches. Uh, And so for us, for the last several months, we've been working our way through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And we got through Genesis 36 as of last Sunday. But today we'll hit pause in our study of Genesis and turn our attention to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, at least for the summer. We've bounced between Genesis and Matthew in this school year. Uh, For a couple of reasons, it's not typical for us to bounce between two books like this, but number one, they're both very long books in the Bible, and so some breaks in between different sections will help, I think, keep our attention. And secondly, Genesis and Matthew are both first books of testaments in our Bibles. Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. And why does that matter? Well, because there's some connections for us to see, some parallels between these first books of testaments in our Bibles. It was just last week that I pointed uh, pointed out for us how Matthew begins his gospel account, which so obviously and purposefully and importantly points us back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis. Matthew 1. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that's Genesis. And then Matthew says Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah. That's where we left off in Genesis. Well, today we'll see in another important connection back to Genesis from Matthew this time to one specific promise that's found in the Abrahamic covenant. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 5. That's where we left off before, well, I don't know when we left off there in Matthew 4, but here we are in Matthew 5. It is where we left off, I know, because I looked it up. And today we'll look at Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, which is famously known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, those succinct statements of blessing given by Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn, and so forth. There are eight Beatitudes in all. And a couple of quick things that we should tuck away up front, even before we read them, is that these are statements of blessing, which are very counterintuitive and paradoxical and countercultural. They turn the wisdom of the world on its ear. These Beatitudes lay out an entirely different message and way of life from nearly everything we hear today. And yet, what the Beatitudes offer is, in fact, what we all seek, what we all want, being blessed, happy, fulfilled, having meaning, being complete, being accepted, being at peace. Now, most people today say that we achieve those kind of blessings by, well, fill in the blank, by winning, by getting what's ours, by succeeding, by excelling, by, by working hard, or by you doing you, being true to yourself, being the best you you can be, or with wealth or with ease, or with sex, or by fighting, or by owning the libs, or by owning the conservatives. And sadly, many Christians dabble in those same life pursuits, just like the world, and they've apparently forgotten that our Savior and Lord has laid out a different way. So whether this is brand new to you, what I'm about to read, or whether you need a fresh reminder, here's what Jesus spelled out that is both counterintuitive, otherworldly, and also so hopeful. 
just what we need. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, notice verses 1 and 2 give us an introduction. Matthew introduces what Jesus is about to say. Let's take our own introduction here and consider to whom and what Jesus is teaching here. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he taught them. No small part of rightly understanding and applying the Beatitudes is first understanding to whom they were addressed. Who is this material for? Jesus had been teaching and proclaiming quite broadly. So if you look down in your Bibles, you can find in chapter 4, verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. His fame spread throughout all Syria. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then chapter 5, verse 1. And then there were crowds. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. So the big question here is whether the Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes within it are directed to the disciples or to the crowd. Is it for true followers of Jesus already in and with him? Or is it just for the curious listening in to see if there could be interest in more? than just listening in. Well, chapter 5, verse 1 seems to suggest that Jesus taught this material to the disciples, not to the crowds. And certainly some of what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5 through 7 is no doubt reserved for disciples, like how they should pray. That's for disciples. Or the expectation of being persecuted for Christ's sake. That's for disciples. But if we fast forward to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, look at chapter 7, verse 13. This is all one sermon. Chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus is saying, Enter by the narrow gate. That's an invitation. Or chapter 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They're still there. They heard it all. Chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Here's the point. There are two audiences in this material. Crowds and disciples. And some need help entering into the kingdom. And even the Beatitudes will help them. But some are followers already and they need reminding how they entered in. And what D.A. Carson says are the norms of kingdom living now that they're in. Notice back to chapter 5, verse 1. He went up on the mountain. That might remind us of Moses on top of Mount Sinai, especially if we're reading Matthew carefully and noting his frequent allusions to both Moses and the Exodus. And after all, Deuteronomy 18, back in Moses' day, 
It promised one who would come who would be a prophet like Moses. And Jesus is indeed that prophet of Deuteronomy 18 and more than a prophet because he goes up on the mountain not to get God's word and then deliver it to the people, but to directly deliver God's word. He is the word. He gives God's word directly. And that's kind of what we see in what Jesus taught. What Jesus taught here in a word is what is blessed. Who is blessed? And before we even consider what that word blessed fully means, we should be thoroughly impressed that Jesus here defines who is blessed. Or, or maybe even better, he speaks blessing on certain kinds of people. That's what God did back at creation. He blessed Adam and Eve. That's what God did throughout the days of the prophets. As he spoke through the prophets, they spoke blessing and curse. God's blessing, God's curse. Here, Jesus speaks blessing upon a certain kind of people. And no surprise that the Sermon on the Mount ends with the crowd saying, this is amazing. He spoke with such authority. Indeed, he does. But what is that blessedness he speaks of? Let's get that under our belt before we move through these various blessings. We could think of the blessed man of Psalm 1 who meditates on God's word day and night. What is he like? He's like a tree planted by streams of water. He flourishes. He's unlike the wicked who are like the chaff which the wind blows away. You could think of blessed as defined by Aaron's blessing in Numbers 6. There, God said to him, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel and say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall the priests put my name upon the people and I will bless them. God says. That's a good definition for the one who is blessed. Really, blessed is shorthand for salvation. Psalm 32, verse 1, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. You may have heard before, blessed, here in the Greek language, makarios, this word, can be translated happy. And that's one way to think about those who are blessed in the Beatitudes. And yet, there is a kind of happiness we know that is just trite and temporary and giddy. And that's not what the Bible is speaking of here because blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who mourn. And yet, happiness and joy and gladness are all part of makarios, being blessed. So blessed is this deep inner joy. Uh, it's human flourishing at its best. It's acceptance with God. It's a clear conscience in this world despite the circumstances. Well, that's enough intro for us. Let's dig into the Beatitudes themselves. We'll take these Beatitudes in three parts. First, we can consider the blessed disposition before God. There's before God, and then there's going to be before others. That'll be our second point of three. But first, the blessed disposition before God. And that occupies the first four of these Beatitudes. So who is blessed? Verse three, the poor in spirit. Not the physically poor, not the financially poor, not necessarily poor in spirit. Not poor emotionally necessarily, not like low self-esteem, low self-confidence, the introverts of the world, or the unambitious or something. No, this is those who are poor, spiritually speaking. They are those who know themselves to be spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer when it comes to getting right with God. 
They have come to learn that they bring nothing to the table in their salvation. They have no spiritual currency with which to buy and sell with God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in the last century, he said, it is an awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. Getting right with God has to start there with an accurate assessment of ourselves. That's why this is the first beatitude. By nature, we don't see that. We don't like that. It doesn't feel good to find it out, let alone confess it. It's counterintuitive to our thinking by nature to be honest with how bad we are. It's countercultural. Our culture prizes self-reliance and self-confidence and inner strength or self-esteem. When it comes to religion, some just reject it outright. They say they don't need it. Sigmund Freud said it's a crutch for the weak. It's singing along with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Or, though Billy Joel wasn't addressing God when he sang this line, but what a great description of sin it is. It's like saying to God, I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. Well, that's the irreligious approach, but there's also a religious approach which tries and strives and and hopes to have enough to commend to God. It's the idea of the scales, the good and the bad, and you hope that in the end, our lives have at least 51% more good on the scales than bad on the scales, and God will have to let us in. But Christians have come to love to sing hymns like this. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save in thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And guess what? He will wash us. If we know we need it and we confess it, The poor in spirit are blessed. Meaning this, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promises on the far side of each of these beatitudes helps define the very word blessed at the beginning of each of them. Blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is the spiritual realm of God's grace and rule over his people. Daniel 7, back then, Daniel 7, hundreds of years before Jesus came, foretold of this coming king and his gracious kingdom. Daniel saw this vision in the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, Father God, And to him, the Son of Man was given dominion and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's what Jesus came to bring, the kingdom. That's what the essence of his preaching and teaching was. Chapter 4, verse 23, he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. As of right now, and since Jesus was on this earth, the kingdom of God is an unseen spiritual realm where Jesus reigns in the hearts of his saved people. But one day, the kingdom will be universal, 
visible, undeniable, a meeting of heaven and earth, a whole new heaven and earth. And that's why we pray, your kingdom come. We want more of it. It is both now and not yet. If you're a Christian, I hope you've got a firm grip on that category. Now and not yet. So often the Bible, especially as we come to the New Testament, we find that tension. Is this fulfilled? Has this happened? This reality? Is it now? Is it not yet? And so often it's now and not yet. Already and not yet. That's the case with the kingdom. When we believe on Jesus, we enter his kingdom. And one day we will enter the fullness of a visible kingdom of heaven and earth. So who is blessed? Well, verse 4 says those who mourn. Not just mourn in general, not just mourn sad things, but they mourn their sin. These beatitudes build upon one another. There's a kind of progression from one to the other. We don't graduate from any of them. Like you graduate from second grade and never have to repeat it again if you graduated from it. No, we stand upon all of these beatitudes, but there is a kind of logical or chronological sequence from one to the other. And that's why those who mourn must mean those who mourn their spiritual poverty. They've come to confess their spiritual poverty. They mourn it. Remember that parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18, where the Pharisee, he prayed like this, if you can call it a prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. I tithe, I, I pray, I fast. Thank God I'm not like him. The tax collector wasn't looking horizontally on that wall of prayer there at the temple. He was only looking up. He was beating on his chest, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says it was that man, the tax collector, who went home justified that day, not the Pharisee. Yeah, well, that fits with this, doesn't it? Those who are spiritually poor and mourn it are the ones who get in. And those who deny it, are not in. Those who mourn are blessed, meaning that they shall be comforted, verse 4. And notice the irony, the contrast between they mourn and they'll be comforted. There's a connection to that. That comfort is not only offered by Jesus here in this beatitude, he's the source of it. Isaiah 61 foretold the day of his coming. It put it on in his words, as it were. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. But here is the paradox. We still mourn our sin as Christians. Remember, we don't graduate from that one either. We still mourn our sin as Christians, even though it is forgiven. We still confess ourselves to be sinners. That's one of the things we do every Sunday when we meet together as a church. We confess sin together. Today we did it quietly on our own. Often we repeat the same words together. We're just rehearsing what we know to be true, that we ourselves are still sinners this week and still in need of grace. We still mourn our sin as Christians, but we are comforted even now. Even now, Jesus brings good news of comfort to all who mourn their sin. And yet here's the paradox in the full picture, and yet that comfort in its fullness, is still to come. That's why we still struggle with guilt. We still feel bad about our sin. We still sin. One day, there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more feelings of guilt. 
There'll be no more reason to keep rehearsing our sins and to mourn our sins. Revelation 21, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. So it's now that we get comfort and more still to come. Who is blessed? Verse 5 says, the meek. The meek. Don't think when you hear meek that this is meekness in relation to others necessarily. Sometimes we define meekness as strength under power. Sorry, power. What is it? Power under control, something like that. We often talk of Moses being that kind of meek man. And that's true in other parts of the Bible that speak of meekness. But here the idea is meekness before God. The spiritually bankrupt who mourn their sin have a right attitude before God. One of meekness. They don't assert themselves before God. They know themselves to be poor. And they mourn. They don't put themselves forward before God. How could they? They're spiritually poor. But the meek, verse 5, are blessed like this. They shall inherit the earth. (laughs) That comes from Psalm 37, which Alwyn read for us earlier. Psalm 37, verse 11. The meek shall inherit the land. Land, earth, often the same word in Hebrew or in Greek. This idea, the meek shall inherit the land, this takes us back to Genesis, to the Abrahamic covenant. Remember the parameters and the promises of the Abrahamic covenant? From Abraham will come a people, peoples, plural, a nation. Nations shall come from him, kings shall come from him. And blessing will come from them and to them and through them to the world. And land was in there. Almost every time those promises get repeated. The land, the land was called inheritance. And for a time, well actually for a lot of time, for a lot of centuries, that land promise meant a patch of land in the Middle East called Israel. But then later on the prophets began speaking of the land being restored in these spectacular global ways. Read Ezekiel 40 all the way to 48, where Ezekiel has this vision of a temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem, but it's going global. What's that mean? Well, then Jesus here shows up and offers to anyone who will acknowledge their spiritual poverty, who mourn it, who are meek before God, inheritance of the land or the earth. They shall inherit the earth. Not just a patch of land in the Middle East. God's promises don't get canceled out and replaced. They get enlarged. And he has every prerogative to do that. And so now, these land promises, the presence of God, where is that on this planet right now? Well, it's everywhere that there are Christians. And so we spread the promise of the land whenever we witness in new places and new Christians pop up. There's more of the presence of God there. And yet still to come, there is a new heaven and a new earth. And and that's actually what Genesis was holding out in its fullness all along with those land promises. Fascinating. Verse 6, who is blessed? Well, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, do you see how these build upon one another? This is the culminating characteristic of the blessed in their relation to God. They know they lack righteousness, and so they hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, isn't hunger and thirst one of these so primal, so necessary, food, drink, so essential? 
When we hunger and thirst, it is literally a matter of life and death. It's desire, but desire unfulfilled. We hunger and thirst because we don't have food and we don't have liquid and we need it. But we don't need food or liquid. We need righteousness. That's what we lack. What do you hunger and thirst for these days? Or really, what causes you to mourn? We could ask that as well. Where do you seek comfort? Where do you hunger and thirst? I hope that you, at some point in your life, come to a point where you can say, I hunger and thirst for what I can't earn, I can't get, I can't produce righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 spoke of our righteous acts as like filthy rags. We need righteousness. And later scriptures speak of Christ's righteousness as a gift to those who believe. It's amazing. That's why Jesus had to obey God fully. That's why he had to obey the law completely. So that his righteous standing could be substituted for our unrighteous standing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ to be sin. Not not really be sin, but to, to look like sin, to bear sin. Him who knew no sin. So that in him, we who believe might become the righteousness of God. By faith. As a gift. We don't deserve it. We simply ask for it and believe that he has enough righteousness for our sins and their sins and their sins and their sins and their sins. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness like this, they are blessed, meaning they will be satisfied. And again, we think of this as a present reality. You think of how Jesus spoke with the woman at the well in John 4. She'd been coming to that same well again and again and again, like you do. You need water day after day after day. And Jesus uses that opportunity as something like a a metaphor. She'd been coming to the same well and hasn't been satisfied yet. And Jesus offers her living water. And from that, she will never thirst again if she will take it up. There is satisfaction in Jesus already. He gives us his righteousness. It's settled. It's done. We can have a clear conscience before God today. And yet there's a not yet component to that satisfaction. They shall be satisfied. One day we shall be fully satisfied. Won't it be so nice someday when Jesus returns and establishes a new heaven and a new earth and we're in it, And we are not restless for satisfaction. We're not fighting hard for contentment. We're not coveting because we have all that we need. That day is coming. Well, as we cross this threshold now to a a second part of the Beatitudes, there's the blessed disposition toward others in verses 7 to 9. Like the way the Ten Commandments move from commandments about God to the commandments that relate to us with others. So the second half of the Beatitudes does the same. It turns attention to others. It assumes we've gone through something of that process of acknowledging our spiritual poverty, mourning it, having a meek heart before God hungering and thirsting after righteousness and getting it. And now, we're to be merciful. Verse seven. Who is blessed? The merciful. Having received mercy from God, they begin to graciously show mercy to others. And so they get mercy. Not because they've earned it, You can't earn it. That's the very nature of mercy. It can't be earned. It's a gift. 
And that's the very point of this beatitude. It's not saying that if we show enough mercy to people in our lives, then God will owe us his mercy. No, not quid pro quo, not give in order to get. No, mercy is the growing instinct of those who know their great need for God's mercy and have experienced that free gift of God's mercy. Has God's mercy so sunk into you that it is beginning to seep out from you? Not perfectly, but is it there spiritually as a work of his grace? Miraculously? Have you been transformed to show mercy because you've tasted of mercy? To show mercy means to have compassion, to to be gentle with people, to be kind to them, especially those in need. Micah 6.8 tells us that we should love mercy, not just do mercy, but love mercy. Does that describe you? Or have you forgotten about God's mercy to you? We we could put this beatitude this way. The merciful get mercy. They get it. They receive it. And they get it. They understand it. The merciful are blessed and shall receive mercy. Verse 8, who is blessed? Well, the pure in heart are blessed. The pure in heart. Purity of heart elsewhere might mean purity before God, honesty before God. Here, actually, because these beatitudes lead one to another, build upon one another, move from God focus then to others focus. This is about purity in our hearts before others. It means honesty in our dealings. Seeking others' good. Having a clear conscience in our relationships and in our dealings. And by the way, let's just gather up from the Beatitudes discussed so far. How this stuff might apply to, let's take a couple of hot points. Social media or politics, those overlap for many people in this room. They don't have to. But for many people in this room, we should be asking ourselves, is my social media presence one of self-promotion, vain glory, self-serving, combative, being nasty? Or would the Beatitudes actually be reflected publicly as I interact with people who disagree with me? I'm poor in spirit. I mourn my sin. I, I, I want to be meek before God and before others. I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Oh, because of his mercy, I want to show mercy. I want to be pure in my heart, in my dealings with others. I leave to you how to apply that in your own life. But a couple of other verses might actually flesh out for us or further explain what pure in our hearts toward others might look like. I have in mind 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 where it says, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands, so that you might walk properly before outsiders. In 1 Peter 2, verse 1, put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Perhaps God would show you ways you could apply these beatitudes and those other two verses I mentioned in your social media activity. The pure in heart can be comforted with this. They'll see God. They'll see God. 
And what a massive theme that runs throughout the whole Bible relating to God's proximity among his people. They see him because they're with him. They have his presence. And again, you think of how that for the Christian is a now and still not yet reality. We have come to see him. Jesus took up God's glory and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, John 1 says. We... We have had God's light shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. We as Christians are to ongoingly behold God's glory through the Bible. 2 Corinthians 3 says, as we behold his glory in the word, we are transformed into that same image of glory from one degree of glory to another. And yet we don't yet see him. Peter makes a point of this. 1 Peter 1, though you don't see him, you love him. Though you don't see him yet, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. So set your hope on the day when Jesus returns and we'll, we will be shown the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or 1 John speaks of when we see him face to face on that day, we will be changed, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. Oh, to see God, to behold him, both now and so much more someday in the future. Who is blessed? Well, verse 9 says the peacemakers are blessed. We're to be peacemakers because God has made peace with us. This peace comes through Jesus Christ this is what the angels announced at his birth, that this means glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we are sons and daughters of peace. Blessed are they because they will be called sons of God, verse 9 says. You think of sons of God as acceptance into the family, adoption, love of the father, his children, he cares for us. Yes, all that, but also think vocationally. Because in ancient times, almost every son did what his father did. Just like Jesus was a carpenter because Joseph was a carpenter. And so when this passage says that we are sons of God, it's speaking vocationally as well. We're peacemakers because our Father is the supreme peacemaker. And we promote peace in this world in part through the gospel of peace being proclaimed throughout the world. Romans 10 speaks of the beautiful feet of the messengers who bring good news of peace. We're to seek peace in our relationships with others. Romans 12 just broadly says, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. So be quick to forgive. Don't hold grudges. Don't judge motives as if you could. Don't gossip about people. Don't, don't pull back when there's conflict, but seek it out for the purpose of peace. And especially do that in the church. Ephesians 4 is so helpful to me. This is the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because there's one body and one Spirit and one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I need to memorize those verses. I have some of them tucked away, but not all of them. Thirdly, back to Matthew 5, there is blessed opposition that we face from the world. Verses 10 to 12 Notice how something changes with the last beatitude. Not only is it the last and the longest and something of the culminating one, 
But notice that the focus changes from what Jesus' followers should do and be like to now what they can expect from the world. Now, next week, we'll see a positive response from the world, but here we have a negative one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is the most surprising of all the Beatitudes. Blessed are the persecuted, the maligned, the misrepresented, the lied about. They're blessed. Notice the reasons for possible persecution. There are two in the passage. For righteousness' sake and on my account. Which means Christian persecution is not when work is hard or when the the boss is a jerk like he is to everyone else. It's not when people don't like us because we're being jerks or being combative or being obnoxious. That's not Christian persecution. That's just reaping what you're sowing. But there is real persecution for those who live like these Beatitudes. They will face persecution for righteousness' sake and on Jesus' account. Now, I know in our country, we don't face too much Christian persecution, though there is some of it, and though there is an increasing amount of it, and though, they, and though we will likely face more of it in the future. But if we need help thinking how unusual our country is with its freedoms, we should just read more church history or, or read what happens in other parts of the world even to this day. Go to persecution.org or other places to get stats and stories of Christian persecution in this world. That is indeed severe. What's surprising is what we face or don't face or haven't faced yet. What's not surprising is what the world faces elsewhere and what many saints of church history have faced what new testament book can you find that is not written to persecuted people for their persecuted context about dealing with persecution it's everywhere in the bible are we ready for whatever will come are we readying ourselves How do we ready ourselves for persecution? Well, by never forgetting the normality, the expectation of it that's laid out in the scriptures. Jesus said, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Paul said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Never forget the normality of persecution, but also we ready ourselves by keeping our eye on the rewards We're blessed if we're persecuted. Ours is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, taking us back to the beginning, back to the promise of the first beatitude. Meaning this is evidence of the genuineness of our faith when we're persecuted. First Peter, that's his main theme in first Peter. It's the genuineness of your faith is being proven in your endurance of godly suffering under persecution. Verse 12 just says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Oh, how great is our reward. Couldn't we spend the next hour or two or week or month or together write a book or read several books on how great the reward is? Or even on what we don't know about what that means, but one day we will. Let these things sit on the horizon of your life before you and change how you live. Friend, do these things describe you or not? Poor in spirit, mourning sin, meek, 
hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking, willing to be, maybe sometimes persecuted? Well, if not, if those do not describe you, you must start at the beginning. You must recognize your spiritual poverty before God. And you must not try harder with any of them. Well, that negates the very first beatitude, does it not? You can't try harder with these things. This is grace wrought, inward planted, work of God that works itself outward. And if this is you, not perfectly, I know, you wish it were more, yes, me too. But if these beatitudes remotely describe you, then hear Jesus say, blessed, settled. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Be comforted. You'll inherit the earth. You're satisfied and you will be fully satisfied. Show mercy because you've received mercy. You'll see God. You are sons and daughters of God. Great is your reward. Rejoice and be glad. Well, may our ideas of blessing and may our pursuits of blessing be continually shaped by what God says that blessing is, not by the world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for these very direct, very succinct, very deep and profound words of hope and invitation. And for all those here who haven't yet felt that banner of blessing declared over their lives, perhaps today they would hear invitation and they would come in by grace recognizing themselves to bring nothing to the table. And may every Christian who knows themselves by grace and grace alone to be blessed by you, well, we pray, Lord, that we would live it out more and more until you come again. We pray in your saving name, Jesus. Amen.